All right, guys, I'm excited to be teaching the Bible again this morning. It was fun these past few weeks for me to kind of sit on the sidelines and be able to watch some other guys who uh, got the opportunity to teach. That's one of the greatest joys for me is seeing other teachers raise up in our context and for them to be able to proclaim God's word. But I also just love teaching the Bible, so I'm excited to be with you guys here this morning. We are continuing our series through First Peter and what we've been seeing throughout First Peter is how to live with hope as exiles. So in other words, in the midst of suffering, the Bible gets really realistic and teaches us how to endure that suffering with patience and joy as we wait for the hope of heaven and being with Jesus forever. And a really practical question that we ask in the midst of our suffering is what do we do when other people treat us poorly? Now, most of us know ourselves well enough to know that we usually don't react well, and especially when we're driving. <laughs> and I remember when I was first learning to drive, being 16 years old, and there was this two-lane highway that led to our house called Highway 26, just outside of West Lafayette, Indiana. And I remember at night, there were people who just left their bright lights on as they passed you. And like on a rural highway, that is just a really bad idea. And my temptation, whenever I was passing these people on this rural highway, would be to put my bright lights on too. And it's like, you want to know how this feels, buddy? But I knew instinctively, like, that would be a really bad idea. So sometimes I would just flash the brights to let them know. Maybe they'd turn them off. But I knew that if I fully turned my bright lights on, it might lead to somebody wrecking their car. And I think we instinctively know that what we naturally want to do as people treat us poorly is not the right thing to do. But... We honestly read the Bible and we're like, it seems a little bit idealistic. The way that I would state what Peter says in this text that he learned from Jesus is that Jesus invites us to love our enemies. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, just hearing that, none of us are actually really there. And so we're going to sort of build the case as we look at this text and see three reasons that we would accept his invitation. We've got the reality of injustice, the eye of God, and the beauty of Jesus. So let's just take those one at a time. First one, the reality of injustice. So we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 18. So verse 18 says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Okay, so first of all, we're sort of using this text as a test case. Which immediately has an issue, because as soon as we see servants or slaves in the Bible, we immediately recoil, and this argument sort of goes through our mind like, does the Bible condone Slavery. It's especially painful in our country because 
of our relatively recent history of slavery. And we can sort of rest assured right away in the text because Peter points out the injustice of slavery. One of the things that troubles us most about images that we have in our mind of slavery is the injustice that a master does against his slave. And Peter calls out the injustice. Now, when I've heard passages taught like this before, I think that sometimes teachers or commentators are too quick to point out that the slavery experience in the first century was different than slavery experienced by people in the 17th or 18th century in America. So you do have to know, though, that the slavery experience during this time was not race-based. Okay? It was sort of like a professional class within that society. So there was the slave-master relationship, but there was sort of an apprenticeship reality to it. But that doesn't take away the reality that there was injustice within the institution. And I think that's the important thing for us to stick on right now. There was injustice within the institution. So yes, there were gentle and good masters, but there were also masters who beat their slaves. So there's injustice. So Peter's writing into this very real situation. And he's giving advice to people who are actually oppressed and enslaved, and they can't get out. And he tells them to be subject to their masters with all respect. Which immediately, as good Americans, we're like, no. That feels like terrible advice. Okay, but what, let's walk through three different possibilities that Peter could have given. Okay, he could have said, okay, you've got a good, respectable master. You can obey them while hating the institution itself. But if you have an unjust master, here's what you should do. Respond to the injustice with violence and hatred. Your master hits you, you hit him back. Your master spits on you, you spit on him back. Okay, that's one possibility, right? Number two is sort of resignation. So you just put up with the injustice in such a way that you sort of disconnect yourself from it, become cynical to the place where your master knows that your heart's not in it at all, and you're actually embittered, and you hate him. It's option number two. Number three, and I think it's the, the one that Peter says is the right one, is loving resistance. He exhorts somebody who's being oppressed who is putting up with injustice to not think of him or herself as a slave, but to resist by loving their master. 
Because by not submitting to the injustice itself, but rather rising above the injustice, they would be able to show the love of Christ and who their true master was. So here's the thing. On the surface, though, I think it seems very impractical to choose option three. I think part of the reason we rub up against that is there's a sense in which, but at the end of the day, if you were a slave and you were to just continue to love your master, you feel like you're losing. You're losing your humanity. You're losing your life. You're losing what's most precious and what's most important to you. So in my study, I came across sort of an interesting situation uh, that I thought would shed some light on the passage that we're looking at. And I wanted to look into somebody who had actually dealt with some violence and oppression and kind of how they would respond to this argument that it's impractical. And so I came across this sermon from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And um, this is what he said in relation to dealing with oppression by means of loving other people. He says, and over the centuries, many persons have argued that this is an extremely difficult command. Speaking of Jesus' command to love your enemies. Many would go so far as to say that it just isn't possible to move out into the actual practice of this glorious command. They would go on to say that this is just additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. So the arguments abound. But far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization Love even for our enemies. Do you see what Dr. King's saying? He's saying, I have experienced oppression. I have experienced injustice. I've gotten beatings for things that I didn't deserve. And I'm telling you, having experienced it, the only thing that actually works is to love your enemies. The only path forward is actually to respond to the injustice with love. He's saying, when you actually face those type of situations, you will see how impractical it is to respond in any different way. Okay, none of us have been enslaved. None of us have experienced this level of injustice, probably. But let's just do a test case. I'm going to use myself as an example to test this hypothesis that love is the best response to injustice. Okay, you guys know I have five kids. And I'm, I'm sort of getting like parental notches in my belt that you don't want to have lately. And so here's the thing. I'm four for five with my kids yelling, I hate you, in my face. 
Okay, and the only child who hasn't yelled, I hate you in my face, has something called a praxy of speech, which means there's a disconnect between her, her mind and her mouth that would make it really hard for her to say that in an intelligible way. So what I'm telling you is basically all of my kids have indicated that they hate me, okay? And so, so let's test this, okay? Option number one, I hate you, Dad. You know what? I hate you too, Now what? Right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's not going to work very well, right? Okay, option number two. I hate you, Dad. Hide in my room, watching Sports Center for the rest of my life. Resignation, right? Option number three. Bear the injustice. Here's why I say injustice, right? Usually they're saying, I hate you because I'm actually doing something well. Like bringing discipline or correction into their life. Go to your room. I hate you. And patiently enduring the suffering, we all know by instinct it's really the only way to move forward. Bearing the injustice and practically moving forward. So here's the question for all of us. How are we dealing with the various injustices that are taking place in our lives? Okay, so things as simple as this. That McDonald's guy put pickles on my burger and I said I didn't want any pickles. Right? Some of us, that's what we think of when we think of the injustices done to us And we respond poorly in those situations, right? Or your boss overlooking you and giving someone else a promotion. Or there's a sense that what's happening in your life is actually because of your Christian faith, that you're not given that opportunity or this opportunity. And what Dr. King would say and what Jesus would say is that the only practical way for us to move forward is to love our enemies. To actually show respect for those who are oppressing us in various ways. Because of the reality of injustice in our world. In other words, it's practical because the world is an unjust place. Part of the reason so many of us struggle going through life is honestly just because our expectations are too high for what the world is. When we expect injustice, we might take a step toward being able to respond in love. Okay, we also need a deeper motivation. Continue, move forward. Not just that it's practical, but actually that the eye of God is on us. In other words, we need to know that when we choose what is right, we are being seen. Here's what Peter goes on to say. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay, so the word for at the beginning of this paragraph indicates that Peter is giving the reasons for his initial command. So in other words, this is really important because Peter just told slaves to be subject to their masters, to to respect them. In other words, to love their enemies. And then he gives us the reason why he's giving this command. And he says mindfulness of God is the way that you obey this command. He says, okay, you're in this situation where injustice is being done to you. There's somebody literally hovering over you, staring you down in this case, about ready to beat you, not because you did something wrong, but because you are doing something right And he's saying, you have to remember in this scenario that God sees you. And he says a couple different times in this passage that it's a gracious thing in God's sight. Literally, it's a favorable thing or it is an evidence of God's grace in your life It is an unnatural response. It is a supernatural response to instead of lashing out when an injustice is done to you, to respond with love. And he's saying that when God sees you do that, he is cheering you on. His heart is filled with joy and he's looking down at you and he's saying, that's my son, that's my daughter. That's how a child of the king acts when they are dealing with injustice and oppression. Because they're not ultimately living for the approval of anyone around them. A slave is not ultimately living for the approval of his slave master. You're not living for the approval of your boss. I'm not living for the approval of my kids. I am living for the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And here is what Peter is saying. God is cheering you on. He is approving of what you do when you respond to your enemies with love. Guys, I was reminded of this last night. Melissa and I went out to eat and then went to the Minnesota Symphony Orchestra concert. And we were sitting in like the fifth row on the left side. It's the first time I've ever been to a symphony concert where I could actually see the conductor's face. It was really cool. There was a guest conductor. He used to be the associate conductor of the Minnesota Symphony Orchestra. And so he's back and he's conducting. And he was just this super expressive guy. And I found myself, more than even watching the musicians, I found myself watching his face. And yeah, he had the baton and he's conducting, but it was almost like he was leading the entire orchestra with his eyes. 
As different people were coming in to play their different parts, he'd be looking here, then he'd be looking there, then he'd be looking here, then he'd be looking back there. And it's like, when it was a quiet part, his eyes got smaller. When it was a loud, exciting part, his eyes got big. And he's leading the entire orchestra with his eyes. And I thought, I'm ditching my old illustration. I got to use this one tomorrow at church because this is exactly what the text is saying. God sees what you're doing. What I noticed about all these musicians in the orchestra is not once throughout the entire concert did any of them look at the audience. To look at the audience when you're a musician in the orchestra, from what I can understand, is suicide because you're going to lose your place. The only person's approval that can matter to you when you're playing in an orchestra is the conductor. You follow his lead. You look for his eyes. And here's what Peter's saying. Look for God's eyes. When you're suffering injustices will come in your life. People will slight you. People will slander you. And it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. But it will be doubly painful if you base your worth and value on their approval. The only way that we can endure as Christians, in this type of way, is if God's approval is at the forefront of our minds. And so we all have a practical application, don't we? Cultivate the presence of God in your life before the injustice comes, before the slight comes, before the deep and painful suffering comes. Come back to Jesus. Recognize that longing that you have in your soul and that it can only be satisfied by spending significant time with him in his word, in prayer, with his people, getting to know him. And then you will begin to become bulletproof against the injustices, the real injustices that come your way, you'll be able to move toward loving other people, even in that situation. So the grand conclusion of the passage is that the ultimate reason that we continue to push on in the face of injustice is the beauty of Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. For to this you have been called. By the way, the this is to endure unjust suffering. Because Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter says you want to be able to push forward in the face of, Jesus, in the face of suffering. Look at Jesus. He brings out two aspects of the beauty of, of Jesus' sacrifice here. He says primarily that Jesus died as a sacrifice for you. And secondarily, you are to follow after the example of Jesus. The reason I say primarily and secondarily is because Peter grounds the whole passage by saying, to this have you, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Notice he says, for you first. And then later he explains what he means when he says that Jesus suffered for us. He picks up that same thought in verse 24. Here's what he means when he says that Jesus suffered for us. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree. And then he picks that same thought up. By his wounds, you have been healed. Here's what we have to remember. We are the ultimate oppressor. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. No matter what injustice has been done to us, we are cosmic oppressors, not cosmic victims. Our sin hung him there. And Jesus responded to our oppression with love. In another place, Peter said, you killed the author of life. And his response was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we don't know what we're doing. But on a daily basis, as we go through our life, because of his sacrifice, Jesus continues to move toward us even in our rebellion and our sin. Did you know today that Jesus loves you? He accepts you. Even though by your attitude and your actions, you continue to make yourself out to be his enemy. So we have to remember that Jesus died for us. And when we see the beauty of his sacrifice for us, then we are ready to follow in his example. Here's what it means, Peter says, to follow in the example of Jesus. He committed no sin. Sin is incompatible 
with following after Jesus. One of the primary ways that we see sin come out of our lives is out of our mouths. It says, no deceit was found in his mouth. And so even when he was pressed by the suffering of the cross, it says when he was reviled, in other words, abuse was hurled on him, he didn't respond with abuse. He was silent. In fact, he responded with love. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten those by whose hands he was suffering. Instead, he entrusted himself to God. Guys, here's why this is important. That we remember that first Jesus died for us. And then we begin to follow his example. Because if you just go out and you try to follow Jesus' example, you will find out quickly that that is impossible. Your heart has to be melted by the gospel of his grace so that then you can go out and follow after his example. I was reminded of this as I was thinking about this trip that my dad took me on when I was in elementary school to Washington, D.C. So my dad took each of us kids to Washington, D.C. in consecutive years. And it was like, still is, one of the highlights of my life. I was in second grade. I remember going to the Smithsonian's. I remember going to the Lincoln Memorial. I remember going to Ford Theater. I remember going to all these places. I got to pick the agenda and got to pick where we went out to eat and all, the, all these things. But if my dad, along the way on the trip, was like, Drew, someday you should really do this for your kids. Like, I'm setting an example for you. See, you see what I'm talking about? Like, this action right here, you should go do that too. It would have ruined the value of the trip. Here's the thing. I want to follow in my dad's example. I want to take my kids on a similar trip. But it's because the trip was for me. It was primarily for me. And because I knew that it was for me, it became an example to me. You have to see that you are the enemy who Jesus loves. And then you will be empowered to love your enemies. Let me end with another quote from Dr. King about the cross. Here's how the cross had melted in his heart into loving his enemies. He said, there is a little tree planted on a hill, and on that tree hangs the most influential character that ever came in this world. But never feel that that tree is a meaningless drama that took place on the stages of history. Oh no, it is a telescope through which we look into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the only way. It is an eternal reminder to a generation depending on nuclear and atomic energy, a generation depending on physical violence, that love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. So this morning as I look into your eyes 
and to the, into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. The cross transforms us into a people who would rather die than hate our enemies. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you in the face of injustice and hate and slander. We want to be transformed in the type of people that respond the way that you respond. Would you lift our eyes to your redemptive love? Would you lift our eyes to the cross? Would we be able to see you hanging there for us? Saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And would we go out into our world and love those who are hurting and who are broken, but also those who are oppressing us and mistreating us. I pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.